Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Uttang dhammang sankhang sami So today, this is the Asala Puja, which is the day when the Buddha first taught the Four Noble Truths. So this is the, they say this is the thing that only Buddhas really bring into the world, the special teaching that only completely enlightened beings bring into the world. Uh, sometimes it doesn't seem like very much in a way. You know, everybody wants to stop suffering, so what's the new? <laughs> But this, based upon this very simple human wish, you know, that's the beauty of it. It's extremely simple and very basic and very essential. That's why it catches so many people because, yeah, I'm up for that. And so that's part of the kind of special quality of it. But it does really, the more you really try to investigate where the suffering or dukkha is, you get to finer and finer levels of it, you begin to kind of start to open up your whole psychological, emotional, subtle energy fields, wherever you begin to take you in there until you kind of clean clean out or it gets cleaned out. And then there's this uh, sense of liberation, awakening, and uh, deathless, nibbana, you know, these kind of terms, which are pretty enigmatic, mind-boggling concepts when we try to conceive them. I think there's, you know, the two stand, well, there's three, with the Nibbana, the deathless, the unconditioned. And they, they ways of trying to wrap a word around something, but they, Nibbana literally means something like this, the blowing out, something's blown out. Deathless, something is um, there always, you know, in some sense of all. So it's not blown out. <laughs> An unconditioned means you can't, you can't get your head around it, <laughs> or your mind around it, or your heart around it. It's, it's, it's not graspable. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> so, so immediately you want to get, get a hold of that, <laughs> whatever that is. And these, unfortunately, these these three words do kind of. Although they're trying to give you a realization that hey, there's something, you know, really very profound here, but they do also play into the most fundamental kind of instincts and biases we have. The nibbana tends to easily gets taken over by that which wants to annihilate, you know, cessation, extinction, get rid of everything, get me out of here, you know. So, so that gets unfortunately the search for nibbana can get co-opted by this, this unwholesome tendency, vibhava, tendency to annihilate, get rid of, not be. Deathless gets co-opted by the opposite, the bhava, wanting to be something on some kind of refined or deathless or immortal something. You know? And the Buddha said, no, it's not that either, it's not bhava, it's not vibhava. <laughs> and then un- unconditioned tends to you know, 
get more interesting people who don't have to don't have to think about things. <laughs> don't bother with details. <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> so although these are all kind of what do you do, you know, it's trying to suggest there is there is something, you know, some way of being that that's free from stress. But I feel safest with just getting rid of stress because I <laughs> that you know, so if you do that, then the rest of it, however you want to call it, you know. Yeah. And so actually the, the Buddha taught this because he started off teaching, or his first teaching, after his realization, he had this amazing realization, and he, this is at Wesak, which we were celebrating three months ago, two months ago, two months ago. So two months have passed, the Buddha had six weeks just uh, kind of blissing out and just reviewing this experience he had. I thought, wow, this is, you know, and some feeling of I could teach this, to, somehow I could try and teach this to others. And he started walking. You know, Bodhgaya to Varanasi. It's a fair walk. You know, I think, I think it's about a couple of weeks walking, hot season, India, you know. Not just zipping into your car and zooming off to tell the lads, but actually foot trucking along, heat, India, arms, food, the whole bit. I think it was a very sobering experience for him after those six weeks of bliss. Because <laughs> from there, the first person he, he, taught, he saw, he just said, you know, I am the all-conqueror, I've realized the deathless. And the person said, well, you know, uh-huh. So and didn't seem to get it. So the Buddha kept walking and walking and walking and walking and walking. By the time he got to Varanasi, he had a different thing to say. <laughs> he still said, he said the deathless is found, but then he had this particular, you know, Four Noble Truths. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? What do you do? Two weeks of walking, what that brings home to you. There's something very coarse about that. You know, walking in India is not a refined, subtle, if their experience is coarse, it's rough, it's hard. And yet, of course, he, so he's got this coarse plane, coarse experience, tremendous aspiration, a realization of, you know, there's something vast here that I've realized. And bringing this together into this, into a world which is pretty coarse. So, what bridges that is, there is this aggravating, irritating, struggling, trying, hot, sticky, sweaty, hungry, tired, um, <laughs> conflicting experience. You know, I'm in that. Yeah, I'm in that. You know, walking for two weeks in India, you do not forget that you're in that. <laughs> you're in that. And... Uh, and then, but there's a kind of, it's like a sort of a maturing, not as a realization, but maturing of the teaching to, to a place where everybody's at, really. Everybody gets sick. Everybody gets tired. Everybody gets hungry. You know? And this is, this is the door, isn't it? Being born is not for sissies, right? <laughs> Get that straight. <laughs> if you can't hack it, don't do it. That's if you've gone and done it. (laughs) 
And also, this is very nice sense in which the Buddha's very appearance as a person was the most the thing that really turned it around. You know, these the, the people he was going to teach were just sitting in this park in Varanasi. They thought, oh, Gautama, you know, backslider, got loose, had rice gruel, you know, finished with this guy, feeble. And then he turns up. They say, oh, we're not going to give him any attention. You know, he's just, that guy's out of it, flunky. And then he, he stood there in his presence. They found themselves involuntarily getting up and, you know, shuffling around and making a place for him to sit. And he, he said these words, the deathless is found, but they, he said, have I ever told, said this before? This is bearing and is what he brought forth that really caught them. You listen. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to remember this when we think like anatta and selflessness and no self, that these teachings are taught by a very, very powerful person who is, you know, embodied, powerful person. It's that what catches you. You know, you can, you don't get, you read the teachings in the book, you know, fine. They make sense to a certain degree. You know, that's the beauty of the teachings. But really, when you see the teachings lived and completed, this is where you, by a person, this is where you get the hit that goes in where the books don't. And any of us who had that uh, blessing to meet beings who, you know, one feels moved, impressed by in that particular way, you know, with enlightened or half enlightened or wherever they are, you know something. This is a realizable by a manifest human being. It's that that's so thrilling and exciting. And there's something about what they're bringing forth in their, their tonality, their emotionality, their their rhythms, their embodiment that really kind of catches you and holds you when the words have died away as just sounds in your head. And uh, I think just to kind of bear that in mind. Mm. I've met very, some very fortunate to have met some fine beings, you know, people like Ajahn Chah, very full of Energy, humor, sharp, witty, probing. You know, if you, you were anywhere in Ajahn Chah's orbit, you were not going to get away with things. You know, <laughs> he's got his radar out, he's always going to do point, poke, tease, tickle. You know, you, you were there and you knew you were there and he knew you knew. <laughs> there was a person there, this Anatar stuff, you know. But, there's, a, there's something there, and uh, very powerful. But also very, um, you know, very warm, very encouraging. It's like this was, this was like five people just walked in the room, or maybe ten people walked in the room, this little man. Yeah. And then when I, I met Mahasi Sado, it was like being with somebody who ten people just walked out of the room. I mean, this was the most nobody person I ever met, you know. But his nobody was, was massive too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, where did everything go? You know, it's kind of this form sitting there, you know, almost completely immobile. And you just kind of like 
you know, the, I mean, the flies are starting to <laughs> tremble <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> What's that, you know? Uh, but then, because he did so little, I mean, he was just doing that, and it was, he was at this place in, in Oxfordshire, where there was all these Burmese people just going, you know, doing all kinds of things, you know, food and offerings and running around trying to make everything perfect. And Mahasi was just sitting right in the middle of it, like, there is nothing. <laughs> it's just this kind of turmoil of human bodies, like, you know, like a waterfall just breaking over him, and he was just sitting there going, Then one moment I just saw him kind of mindfully reach his hand out, pick up one of these tooth woods and just start cleaning his ear. <laughs> <laughs> and when Mahasi Saido cleaned his ear, <laughs> that ear was clean. <laughs> <laughs> that was one clean ear, you knew that. <laughs> and something about just watching this man clean his ear, that was kind of like, wow. <laughs> and also, he just like he obviously wasn't bothering things he didn't need to bother with. You know, it's just like things are going on, and I actually don't need to be. You know, things are going on. I'm, I'm aware of that, but I don't need to actually engage with that. And I just had one moment with him. You know, so I had to come and pay my respects to him. He just kind of looked at me. This incredible warmth. A real humorous little twinkle and warmth just going kind of from this eye somewhere inside this mountain. This little eye peeped out and looked straight, totally unwavering, and it's going kind of <laughs> a warm feeling of encouragement and you know life's like that. Yeah, so these are these are kind of lovely moments. Um, Many, you know, Master Hua, another Dalai Lama. Yeah, I could go on, but not wishing to kind of just short, short um, deal with these people briefly. But the point it really is this sense of, you know, that this this can, this teaching can actually reach into a very human sphere in a very thrilling way, the bells ring, something resonates, and that's what, that's the transmission, is that kind of, something is resonant, there's a transmission there that's not just a verbal thing. Now, whether we have the opportunity to be with others or not, you know, still it's good to, to remember that, because what is it that can resonate? You know? And, uh, you know, it's what it, the realization of where um, stress, suffering, conflict, um, limitation, loss, dysfunction, all these ways, dis-ease can occur. It's in that, all those, pla- wherever that occurs, that's where the resonance can occur. So in some ways it's very simple. Wherever you experience some kind of stress, that particular place is the place that can release you know. and if it releases it's not just you've got rid of a problem but actually you are five times enhanced in that particular place 
So, for example, if you're, if you're feeling it, uh, some kind of conflict in your heart, emotional conflict, and you work upon releasing that, it's not just, oh, well, now I'm okay again. You're actually wiser, grander, bigger, more compassionate, more loving, deeper, you know, so that that sense of conflict has actually asked you to tackle it in a way that will not just eliminate the conflict, will actually have this enlarging effect, you know, what I would call enlarging effect. So, you know, so we see the path is both cessation, ending of a restriction, ending of a conflict, ending of a limitation, ending of an incapacity, and it's also it's also deathless, and it's the the um, awakening of something vaster. The two go together. You know, that kind of sense of something ceases, therefore something else is revealed. We don't create that something else. We don't have to make it, try it, become it, have it, do it, get it. It's revealed. Yeah. So the path is both with effort in that you have to actually apply yourself skillfully to these places where one is tight, limited, fearful, restricted, uncertain, seemingly stymied. Apply yourself to that. And it's also without effort in that through the application of that there arises from no, vol- no volition, with no intention, effortlessly, there's the revelation where there's peace. Obviously, you know, complete peace is going to be somewhere where there's no, no, en- no efforts, no, no trying, no having, no holding, because all that's going to require some kind of tension, isn't it? So the release is in the place of there's no trying anymore, and yet there's trying and there's no not trying. So cessation and then realization. And this is something that I imagine we're all working at and doing and probably experiencing, you know, at, at perhaps less completed or, you know, thorough or lofty levels, but, you know, in certain ways we are maybe, you know, in fact I've witnessed it in, certainly in others, um, the sense of actually uh, being a bit tight, being a bit narrow, being a bit fearful, dogmatic, holding on, and then working with that and becoming grander, more loving, more wise, more visionary, more stable. And you can, persons, you know. And you begin, they begin to kind of recognize, oh, that, that, that obstacle that obstacle, that constricted state, was really one of the most primary ways in which it was constricted. Is because all the time, something in there kept saying, this is me. <laughs> this is all I am. I can't do this. I'm stuck with this. I'm never going to be that. I'm you, I am this, I am that. I'm, I'm not this, I'm not that. I won't ever, I can't, I don't, you know. And this is so, uh, that's a, that's a self-view. And that's what really holds it all together. That kind of mantra repeatedly hypnotizes awareness, the mind, you know, into this very restricted place, bounded by fear, um, bounded by um, frustration, you know, bounded by its addictions. We don't want to try anything new, happy in our little 
little addictive sphere where we've got our comforts and our things we feel okay with so we get kind of addicted and that stops us from kind of opening out <clears throat> and all this this is the kind of you know and then there's a belief in that because it sort of sort of works <laughs> because you know it even uh, though it is kind of limited it so it's bounded by a cer- certain fearfulness an unknowing awija uncertainty not realizing so therefore you know there's there's a real limitation on, on one's awareness and then but along with that is the kind of the sweetener which makes it possible for us to kind of survive in that state is we have little addictive things that keep us going in there to stop us feeling that sense of limitation you know it can be obviously big addictions of booze and you know porn or cigarettes or something like that or but then you get lesser addictions that perhaps we don't really want to acknowledge as addictions our little you know habits our routines our uh, emotional stances our strategies we keep going into get busy you know being busy is a is a respectable form of addiction <laughs> it's the addiction was encouraged to have actually because you're doing something important necessary and useful worthwhile valuable get busy doing it don't hang around sit around there doing nothing being lazy bum get out and work your butt off and that's respectable but you know uh-huh. uh, and how come the busyness never really stops you never get to the bit where it's all completed and, because there's always something else to do so this is addiction addiction to being busy a respectable much approved form of addiction um, so there are many of these kinds of ways in which we, the, the mind gets preoccupied to not notice what would it be like if this wasn't here you know oh oh no. so I certainly have you know, friends and acquaintances, relatives, who realise they don't really need to work so much financially, or they don't need to work as much. But the idea of not having something to do is just too awful. You know, the mind just hits the wall. You know, that very notion. So, turn up the volume on something. You know, get get energies moving on something these are of course challenging and one shouldn't just be flippant about it they're not small things Um, so you know we come to the place where we begin to recognize suffering or stress as being not just the um, stuff that's that's kind of happening the stuff we're creating So, if it was just stuff that happens because I'm in India or I'm in Paddington and it's raining, and so then they go to somewhere where it doesn't happen, you know. And they say, well, it's just because anywhere on this planet, we'll go to somewhere it doesn't happen. Well, it happened when I'm dead, you know, or I'm in some kind of other sphere. So that's the kind of uh, state orientation, you might say. So, you know, if a naive person thinks it's not going to happen in the south of France, 
I've just been to the south of France, it happens there. (laughs) (laughs) Happens with air conditioning, it still happens. (laughs) So, naive, then if you're a bit more, less naive, you think, oh, well, it happens if I go to some some kind of um, other, other... state of mind. So the meditator tends to think, well, it happen if I get into this kind of re- reasonably good state of mind. I really don't even think that, but we have that draw, because where else do you go? The external world's gonna, always going to be like that. Well, let's find some internal place where I won't feel those things. And this is definitely something that we probably try. You know? And uh, the grace of failure that uh, how wonderful it is that our lives are fail so repeatedly and so um, so um, punctually. <laughs> so yes, we can we can occasionally arrive at some some pleasant states, depending on what kind of resources you have. And then, but then. You know, you've got to come down to this thing, just like the Buddha did, walk the road to, from Bodhagaya to Varanasi. You're not, it's not all blissful states out there. And it, you know, in some ways, somehow we're still in this. So what it's being aimed at is not really a state of any kind. Because that's the nature of states. They, they, this, 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 they have the limitation of being a state. You know, the only state has got boundaries around it. I mean, they can be very big boundaries. The biggest boundaries are the Brahma Loka, you know, vast boundaries. You know, boundaries in time and space that are inconceivable. This is just, of course, you know, just the bit of cosmology that you may adopt or not. But um, we're looking to our own awareness and you can find some more boundless states there with meditation. And the Buddha said, yeah, this is, this is a noble enough practice. He did the whole bit, you know, right up to these very refined levels, neither perception nor non-perception, and so forth. said, yeah, that's a done states. There is no more states you can do than this lot. Done it. Um, this isn't it either. So what he taught and what was transmitted was a view. It was different from a state. State is something that you're in. There's energy running through that state. There's particular subtle energies. You know, say we're happy. We feel a certain emotional energy running and and becoming coherent into that particular form joyful, that's a state. Um, if you're happy, that's a state. If you're depressed, that's a state. Isn't it? So the energy runs in a particular way, forms a particular emotional, takes an emotional form that we can all recognize. It often has a bodily expression to it. Our bodies tighten up or loosen up or feel fizzy and bright or feel contracted and dull. That's state. Yeah? And you can know it, you can define it. So it's that there. View is different. View, in fact, is, we can summarize it as, is that there. 
that's a view. That experience is a view. So what is, is that the same as a state? No, because, you know, you can make it into a state. When you, if you make a view into a state, it becomes a dogma. I believe in that there. <laughs> yeah? I believe that that there is the only way. I believe that, you know, that particular viewpoint, that's, that's it. Yeah? So we might say, you know, any, anything, like well, there is oneness, for example, okay, or there is no self. Now, when that's held, you can feel the difference. When that's held, that's a dogma, your energy runs into that, what happens? There's a certain binding effect, probably in the head. Yeah? You can feel it. There's a certain binding effect, probably occurs in the heart as well. A certain sense of, I am this, I take a stand upon this, this is right. There's a certain binding effect. Then that's how you, a view becomes a state. And the problem is that when, you, when someone tries to describe a view of emptiness or not-self or whatever, oneness or deathlessness, you, hear, you can hear that and your mind makes it into a state. Oh, that's good, I've got that, I've got that, that's really it. Just what happens? And so the Buddha is saying, don't attach to these teachings, don't even attach to right view, because it becomes a dogma. And it has this effect of a constriction of some kind. Now, of course, we're going to attach. As long as there's that possibility, you can attach, because that's kind of like, that's what folks do. <laughs> that's what these systems do, unless, unless they're completely realized. So then you actually start to, well, okay, fine, but, you know, without being kind of negative, just kind of witness attachment. Then, if you're witnessing attachment as something that occurs, ah, now that's a view. You see, you've got a view there. You're, witness, you're witnessing attachment. And you witness the attachment kind of, and as soon as you witness it, it sort of starts to loosen. If you witness it, so it's this sense of real, the purity of that regard. How can we witness it without, you know, some forming some state out of it? You know, which is really, for, for meditators and contemplatives, it's a very big issue, actually. Because you hear these lovely teachings, and we, we have a systems that work in terms of attaching. So we attach to a, a teaching, a very good teaching, and then we try to make that teaching happen for us. So you get the tightening up into a dogma, a state of some kind. You, one imagines one has got to get to that state. And the energy that happens in that is it's very tight energy. Tighten up. And we call that trying. We say, oh, this must be what they mean by right effort. Hmm. It's kind of trying to get there. But it really feels very, really, you know... After a while, you think, God, I'm tired of all this effort, struggle. As I could not try. So we try to stop trying. Maybe relax a bit. But then we can also, ah, the state of relaxation, that's it. 
And then, well, I don't, this means I don't want to do anything anymore because uh, I want to be in that relaxed state. So the one can certainly attach the other way. You know, it just swings backwards and forwards. And there's a certain quality of what this rather, um, you know, tough teaching is about. You know, being prepared to witness dukkha, which is on a coarse level, obvious pain. On a subtler level is this dissonance. And on another level is our frustration of being able to do it. You know, we can't quite make it work. So even once this is something we witness, you, know, you develop the view of dukkha. And the view, if, you, if it's developed, is to develop uh, you get bigger and bigger hearted. Not because you're trying to be big. That's, the, that's kind of something you have to accommodate. Open up. Stop fighting. Stop struggling. And something begins to dawn. If you could just not keep naming it as yourself, that would be a good start, wouldn't it? If you could actually get out of that particular habit and just say, well, this is what it's like, isn't it? You know, this is what attachment feels like, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just that basic level of having people who, who, who bear witness to that and say, yeah, yeah, that's what it feels like. I get this kind of feeling in here and I feel a bit nervy and then I tighten up. Oh, yeah, I do that. Or different flavours of it. And you begin to see it as a phenomenon. And this really is the kind of crucial bit of that, of that practice path. It's not I am suffering, but there, there is. There is this. And what it takes to be able to stand with that. Frustrating, irritating, embarrassing, awkward, stupid, messy stuff. Without, you know, running away, without running into it, without blaming, justifying, projecting it out, projecting it in. You know, this is in fact, this is our kind of, it's hard, it's a tough teaching in a way, but that's our, that's our learning edge. You know? And everything else really is to help us be able to stand with that, to bear it. You know, the, the, the soothing teachings, like the samatha, just feeling comfortable in yourself, having good friends, getting enough to eat, exercising, breathing in, breathing out, just being with that feeling the body energies, developing loving-kindness towards others as to myself, recollecting the Buddha, feeling joy in the practice. There's an immense um, spectrum of these teachings, you know, which are required, really, because it takes a lot, an enormous amount, to just bear with, stand with dukkha without (laughs) constricting in some way, without trying to fix it in some way, without blaming it on somebody, without blaming it on myself, without getting exasperated, without punching it and fighting it and kicking it and biting it. Because all our normal energies keep, that's the way they, that's the way they work. And that, all that is what's contained in this kind of little anatta bit, not self bit all those strategies. Hmm. 
But to release those strategies is not the extinction of a person. There's the release into a, a vaster, you know, and these energies can then flow, the emotional energy can move, the physical energy is still there, the body energy is still present, we can still think. The Buddhas seem to have thought quite a lot, talked a fair bit, walked around on the planet, ate, slept, you know. And this is a teaching, isn't it? It's not just kind of evaporated. <laughs> Seems to be able to be quite witty at times and humorous at times and fierce at times, kindly at times, prepared to spend a lot of time dealing with kind of minutiae of people's questions about foot scrapers and colours of robes and needle cases and things like that. You just you think, look, this is stupid stuff. Young conditions where it's at, don't bother with those silly details. <laughs> you know, that's the condition, isn't it? <laughs> just have that sense of, you know, like Mahasi side I'll clean his ear. <laughs> Yeah, it needs to be clean before we clean it. So there's that. And the Buddha is saying there's no way in which you can define all measures, definitions of this personhood have gone out. You can't define it as this. You can't say he exists. You can't say he doesn't exist. It's important to get both of that. You can't say he doesn't exist. So this is not the Vibhava trap. But at the same time, you can't say he exists. This is not the Guru trap. This is the kind of thing that just holds your mind in this, in this beautiful kind of paradox. It gives you an encouragement as a human being, being affected, feeling the presence. It's just gives you that encouragement to, you know, feel your own presence more fully. Feel your own body more fully. Feel your own heart more fully. But very much with this kind of intention and inclination to, what is this? You know, to witness it as it is. And this inclination of, there's a process here where, you know, holding this in a certain way can lead to suffering. But I'm also encouraged by the presence of a Buddha to say holding all this in a certain way leads you out. The Buddha did not take anything other than his own body, his own mind, his own heart as his teacher, as his practice. If you hold this in the right way, this takes you to peace. So the encouragement really is, you know, how to hold it without, you know, and the holding is exactly this shift from holding anything as a state to holding it with this wonderful quality of view. I call it, sometimes I call it regard, because it's just a little more full on. There's a sense of empathy with that, a sense of... Um, really connection to these processes. No um, turning away. 
deep regard. So this is you know, mindfulness, nice little word. And for most people need to develop skills of attention in order to, to be able to come to a place of mindfulness. And sometimes we don't necessarily recognize this. You want to start at step seven, you know, of the eightfold path and bother with that other stuff. But it is, <laughs> it's down number seven, you know. And so there are certain things that help to establish mindfulness. One of them, in terms of attention, is just this scanning through and starting to sift out. Well, yeah, that, that one's not going anywhere. That one, that one's distinctly taking me into a bog. This one I feel more complete with. You know, just starting to sieve through. Um, looking for what is the most pertinent in all this, you know, complexities of thoughts and feelings. What's the real bit in this? So there's a certain quality of inquiry. Where, where's the bit that's really hitting or touching or firing things off? You know, you've got these thought systems where you can be thinking about Plato or engineering or something. Other. Where's the real bit in this? So you've got to refer the thought process to something that's more emotive, like the feeling of this. This is, a, this is busyness, agitation resentment, uh, joyfulness, uh, kindness, uh, aversion. You just start to kind of do broad brush on this stuff. And this is Manasika, only so Manasikara, really taking yourself into the quality behind the thought process. And then you think, let's then, if we're going to do this, let's bear in mind something that's pertinent. You know, this is frustration. This is and so on, you know. This is wanting. Mm. And so, for, for again, the Buddha's recommendation is we actually firm up that experience with, with embodiment, which is sometimes the bit that's miss, missed. We think, you know, meditation, we're sitting here with bodies, that it's kind of a purely immaterial experience mental or emotional experience. But the pragmatism of this is that you, it's very difficult to hold emotions and thoughts without something grounded to do that. And I think we have a difficulty in that we very much assume the body to just be the external thing that we can see rather than actually tuning into the internal presence of the body we might say the energy of the body, primary energy of the body, which is what breathing in and out is really the, the central um, sense of this. I still, myself, I still um, regard this very highly. Uh, it's one of my uh, most fav- favorite forms of failure. <laughs> but it's a very good one because I learn quite a lot in failing with this one. 
you know, how I, how I drop, how I jump out of my, into my head, how I jump into my emotions, how I constrict, how I defend, how I get impatient and hurry, how I force, how I block things off. And the breath tells me this in a very, you know, uncom- with no comment. Just say, uh-huh, there, he did it there. It happened there, didn't it? Yeah. He's not saying, you're an idiot, you shouldn't do that. He says, that's what my head does. But after a while, he said, yeah, okay, we've been down that, that route. Just go to the, the phenomenon itself. This is the tightening, this is the constriction, this is the running out, and it occurs around about here, you know. Breathing out, drift off, breathing in. Don't get it. Don't get them because it's boring or can't be bothered or my energies are running the wrong way. There's something more important to do right now. You know, so I start to kind of really understand a lot of these strategies in, in myself. And, you know, I don't know many thousands of hours of meditation <laughs> trying to do this. <laughs> no, it's not about trying. And yet there is. It's not about getting it right, and yet there is getting it. It does get right. And it's... And these various um, thought forms and strategies and ideas that come into my mind that seem important, seem necessary, seem interesting, been there, done that, doesn't work. Been there, done that, it's, a, it's an illusion. Been there, done that one, enough of that. Yeah. And so there's a kind of wising up. So this is certainly the best place to fail, in my, in my experience, because I can really feel it much more than just the head conviction. It goes right into the body. You know, the body doesn't tell lies, doesn't know how to tell lies. My head is pretty good at self-deception. My heart reacts. I get upset with myself. I give up on myself. I get fed up with myself. I'm sick of myself. I encourage myself. I try and love myself. But really, I'm fed up with myself and time. And, you know, da, 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 da. So there's a lot of reactivity in my heart. Body just doesn't bother with that either. But it does notice there's the, there's the drifting, you've dropped me again. <laughs> Run off chasing another woman again. <laughs> Come back home, you know, and after a while you go off on that little trip and yeah, that was fun, but boom, you know. You've got to come home sooner or later. And just making it that you find in in the body the place that's comfortable. Actually makes you want to be at home. Hmm. So I think this is really important. There's no way you can keep forcing yourself into, into embodiment, into breathing, into walking from just some idea of you should do this, you should get good at it. You've got to find it's worthwhile really finding a place somewhere in there you feel comfortable and really enhancing your awareness of that, what it's like for that few moments maybe you just feel relaxed, at ease and things are just flowing Mm. that happens and really know that that at that particular time some of those psychologies weren't happening And you see, you can review that. Keep reviewing that. 
what occurs the more that we use this foundational practice of mindfulness of the body and I don't want to kind of go on about breathing particularly because you know that, that's, just, that's a quite a subtle and specific form of it but just mindfulness of standing, walking, sitting just feeling yourself into your body because because before you can do breathing you've got to actually feel yourself into your body and sometimes that's that's difficult when one has spent so much time away you haven't really made a home there finding a place in the body just maybe in the stillness or sittingness or the warmth of it or the kind of way it feels you're sort of protected in there you know, when you're in your body there's a sense of really being at home where can we find that? could be in your chest, could be in your throat, could be in your belly for a lot of people it's, it's, a, it's a kind of low-centred sense, belly sense but, you know, people vary oh, you know, where you feel very grounded with no pressure and let your mind, heart, awareness take in that, that experience. There's where certainly one theme of the teaching is to place one's mindfulness right there. Bear that in mind. Undo the tangles that take you out of that. Undo the, the volitions, the momentums, the trying, the struggling that take you out of that. Undo the imperatives that take you out of that. Undo the fear of failure that take you out of that. Hmm? Fail, learn to fail. Fail, breathing out. Come, you know, it's, it's there. So what that can do, actually, is it takes you from the very, very apparent shift, you know, which is it takes you from the, what we saw the coarse body shouldn't use the word coarse, ordinary body, which is about muscles and flesh and doing things and touching and tasting and seeing, you know, that, to the subtle body, which is just about sense of presence. I'm here. This is my address. This is the me bit, this bit. And all the other bits are just kind of details that get tacked on it, whether I'm male or female, big or small, German or Irish, that's extra, you know, boom, here it is. So it takes you from the coarser, detailed and more conflictive level, where there's all these differences and, and so forth, and needing to be in comparisons, to something that's, that's subtler. And the quality of the subtle is it's, all, it's connected to your emotional sense, your emotive sense. Hmm. You know, like perhaps when you wake up in the morning, you just feel yourself, you just kind of linger around that moment. Don't jump. You feel the sense of the warmth, the body breathing, being there. And just how kind of primary that is, baby-like that is, before you've got all your strategies and to-dos going. And how something in this really loves that why we lie around in baths or swimming pools or why do we do that you know because you go into a, 
kind of body state where you can actually just just be in that body. So, you know, and then we have whatever we can do in terms of our exercise, exercising the body to enable us to get into this comfortable bit. Because there's where you're, you're coming to a subtle, and the subtle energies are trans, they start to transpersonalize. In other words, they don't really have names or identities around them. You know, they don't have histories around them, personal histories. And yet there it is, and it's it because because it kind of it, it sort of takes you to a place, you know, where it's much less personal, it's much less personal reactivity. This is just the strategy. This is a strategy of samatha. It's like this. It is a strategy, and it, it does arrive at states, but it's it's a skillful one. Because there, you, you actually some of the heat goes off who you are as a person and the topic in your life. So you have that possibility of being able to regard from a little more richer, easier place. You know, regard a more basic patterning. You know, this is this is why I jump out of this presence, because I'm fearful or greedy or uh, panicking in some kind or another somewhere or another. So uh, and then it can be it can be Release just by coming back into that presence. You can release it. So you begin to see some of this, uh, witness some of these stuff, just as a kind of a mechanism of, of losing it. We will lose it, I'm sure, many times a day. You know? And how to say, how to lose it and benefit from that, make good opportunity of that, so you really learn about losing it get really simple about not the why and the who and who she, what she said and how dare they and if they shouldn't be this way and all that kind of stuff. But, ah, oh, that was losing it. <laughs> it. It's kind of busy, bustling, tight, various kinds of familiar patterns of irritation or fascination occurring. And then, okay, yeah. And now, been there, done that. And now, ah. Oh, this is just coming back again. Very, it's very simple, isn't it, actually? But how we do that with, with, with less shame, blame, and so on. Just that, you're beginning to awaken a view which is not self. Through really contemplating dukkha, you know, in more refined and more purposeful way because you know everybody's interested in not suffering sure you know so how much time are we going to spend you know redecorating the flat how much time are we going to spend getting a new set of clothes how much time are we going to spend in so forth so forth so forth so forth so forth to tidy up, you know, this realm that really we have very little say over and can't hold. Wouldn't it be better to direct that into the into the this psychologies that carry tremendous causative um, processes? 
So this is the really key bit. You're looking at the dukkha that is specifically about your own cause and effect process. The bits that you're really intimately involved with. Where you are running your stuff and giving rise to effects that you will, you know, you'll be left with. You know, the Buddha's really encouragement to say, look, do this. This is, pull that arrow out. This is, this is the bit. The bit where your own volition is happening, where your own sense of being is happening. This is, this is, the, this is the quality of dukkha to, to really go for. Don't get caught up in other people's stuff whether they're right or wrong or better or worse or getting a better deal than I'm getting or, you know, how, do, how dare she and how, how could he and all that. Look at, look at frustration, look at resentment, look at jealousy, look at self-disparagement, look at the feeling of inadequacy, you know. Because for most, most of us, running this stuff and we project it out. And, you know, how much of it are you going to cure? So you just start to wisely reflect on how much of the world are you going to set to rights before you can find a place to sit? You know, how many waves in the sea you can iron flat before you can find a place you can float? How many hills are you going to wipe out before you can find a bit of flat land to sit on? Wouldn't it be better to just get a bit more <laughs> flexible inside? So, you know, like Mahasi Sado, I'd sit there, people are doing their stuff, that's their stuff, I'm going to clean my ear. That's the bit I can deal with. <laughs> you know, or Buddha, you know, walking around India and just, uh, you know, all kinds of chaos, madness going on around him, just dealing with what he could deal with terms of, you know, cause and effect, cause and effect. This is a real encouragement. So we begin to kind of, you know, in this realm, you start to kind of look at the fibers of experience. How much of it is external? How m- most of it's mingled, isn't it? It's external and internal. And then why the body is so useful is that you come to the, you can feel the difference you can feel the difference because the internal body impression is quite different from the external body impression. Whereas for the mind, it's not, not clear, you know, because it's all thoughts and feelings. They're all sort of mingled up, in, whether it's thinking about, you know, Susan or Jeff or something. Is that in me or is that them? Or, it's difficult to say. It's all stuck together because that isn't the job of the mind or the heart. They're not there to provide presence, they're to provide connection. Mm -hmm. They're to provide sort of, you know, um, joining and resonating and and really feeling something. The external, they bring the external world into you, don't they? The body doesn't do that. Body energy doesn't do that, it's maintained, this is the me bit. This is the me bit. Not that, this is the me bit. It does that. 
tactile, isn't it? Something touches you, you know that was the thing that touched, now I'm, the, I'm being touched. It's very clear, never misses that. So it helps us to really sense you know, where, where's, where am I? You know, where's the me bit in this experience? Okay, here's the, the tension, here's the not wanting, here's the tightening up, here's the whatever it is, you know. And then can be released. So it's, it's very useful for clearing through some of these uh, difficulties in, in owning dukkha. You know, in owning up to the bit that you can deal with and not taking on the bit that you can't deal with. The beauty of it is, actually, that if that is accomplished, the mind and the heart start to clear and be, be more discerning. You begin to witness, with that as a template, you know, the panic energies, the, re- the running out energies, the retracting energies, the conflicting energies. Oh, that, oh yeah, that particular voice, you know, that's, that's the Mara. That particular emotional pattern, that's the Mara. Doesn't mean it's all shot, but there are definitely some, some wacky stuff in there. You know? Doesn't mean you shouldn't have a mind or a heart, but just to be able to recognize which is the bit you can trust. And this embodiment helps you to, to learn that. But of course, you know, the of course takes some doing. And like everything else, you know, once you consider it, present it, it becomes something else you've got to get to and have, the state. Or can you just use it as a place to establish a view? A reference point to establish a view. Don't you don't need to even kind of get into those subtle energies. I mean, I really like it in there. <laughs> it's quite fascinating. You know, particularly subtle energies. I find them very nice. Very in. But then you can get fascinated by it all because there's a lot of stuff there. And really should be able to use it as you sober up a bit, you have a few excessive bits of it, and then you okay, sober up. Just use it as a, as a way of being able to refer to the rest, you know. And then awakening the heart. So... This is, the, this is the relational experience that is proper and true and bright in compassion without any kind of grasping. You awaken the, the knowing. This is the knowing that's not just about fascinating with ideas, forming cognitive patterns. This is the knowing that's about clarity. Mm-hmm. When we have clarity, we have compassion, we have presence, then this whole system is unified and cleared, and you have <laughs> selfless person.
So just some, you know, encouragement. This is we have a, this is a meditation vigil, and then we have a, a retreat together for a time, period of time, and you know everybody's got their stuff they're working with. Uh, what I can say is, you know, there is example. Human being can realize there's the support, the encouragement. Don't sell yourself short. Don't reach out too high. Don't give up. 